We come this morning to our sermon passage, and we're continuing on in the Gospel of John. And this morning finds us at the beginning of John chapter 15. So a little bit of background before I get started. What's going on is the Gospel of John moves pretty quickly um, through the three years of Jesus' Jesus's ministry. That's the first uh, 11 chapters, 12 chapters. But when it gets to John chapter 13, John 13 through 17 is all the span of a couple of hours. It's one night. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. The night that He was arrested. And what we have here is Jesus knows what's coming next. And He is offering to His disciples, before He goes to face His crucifixion, the words that He thinks is most important for them to hear. Not just for that night, but for the rest of their lives. And what we have in the Gospel of John is maybe even 60 years later, John, who was in that room as a very young man at the time, writing these things down before he passes away. So that's all background to lead us up to John 15. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 17. If you can turn there in your Bibles or it's printed for you in your bulletin. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know, what his ma doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command. Love each other. Love each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. So I pray that in these moments as we stop to attend to the treasures that we have here in your word, that you would move upon our hearts to show us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may love him all the more and chase after him. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm not a big runner. I ran a 5K last year, and I haven't stopped talking about it since. But um, I'm not a big runner. 5K is probably my limit. That's where I tap out. But, you know, you've heard of marathons. You've seen marathons. That's 24 miles. 5K is like 3.2, I think. 24 miles. But have you ever heard of an ultra marathon? An 
ultra marathon. That is anything beyond a normal 24 mile. They're often 100 miles or maybe even more. I have a buddy who runs ultra marathons and um, yeah, I, I, I can't get my mind around that. But I saw a documentary a couple years ago that was utterly fascinating. It was about one of the most extreme ultra marathons. It takes place in the mountains of East Tennessee. It's called the Barclay Marathons. This is a documentary that is worth looking up. It's this wild man from the mountains of Tennessee decided to develop this marathon in the 80s, and he tricks people apparently into trying to do it. Um, but the Barclay Marathon, it, it, it's, it's one loop of 20 miles that you have to do five times to complete the, the race. But because it's in the mountains, the elevation changes, so each loop that's 20 miles is more about like 25 miles. And there's no marked out trail. It's not like somebody goes through and carves out the trail uh, beforehand. In fact, in some places, there's no trail at all. And it's not marked. In fact, what they do to let you know which way to go is they leave uh, paperback novels along the way. And you have to find these novels, flip to your designated page, and it tells you where the next book will be. So your first track through is trying to figure out exactly where the trail is even going. And it's one, that's the first time through. It's, you're supposed to go five if you complete the race. The first two you run clockwise, the second two you run counterclockwise, and then if you've made it to the fifth uh, lap, they send each individual person a, a different way. So the first person to finish the fourth lap has to go clockwise, the second counterclockwise. Yeah, it's it, right, Harold. It's incredibly complicated. And I'm not even getting into all of it. Because here's the other thing, once you start, you have 60 hours and there's no breaks. There's no sleep breaks. So you've got to chart it out and figure out in these 60 hours, I'm going to run these five laps. I'm going to sleep here. I'm going to take in my calories here on this lap and you can only carry so much with you, obviously. And they're going through, they're dealing with blisters and injuries and all kinds of different things. So it's complicated. Only 15 people have completed the whole race since it started in 1986. And they have, I think, 50 people each year. So like I said, if you're going to finish this, you have to squeeze everything into 60 hours. You have to squeeze in sleep, food breaks. You have to uh, figure out your water intake on top of all the injuries and all the blisters. And for the runners on the course, there are only two water stops along the whole way. And those water stops, those are the utter lifelines. If you cannot find these water stops, you are in trouble. You're just going to have to stop and shoot a flare up or something and hope somebody finds you. Now I want you to imagine that you're a person who runs ultra marathons and you're in the Barclay Marathon and you're going along and you're exhausted. You're all scratched up. You see the water stop in front of you. When you get there, you pick up the water to drink it and you discover that what's in the water cup is sewer water. Not water to give you life, it's sewer water. I know that's disgusting. Everybody in here is thinking, ugh, that's really nasty. Of course it is. But the reason I bring that up is because when we try to live life with anything other than the love of Jesus as our nourishment, it's like us trying to run this marathon fueled on sewer water. I know that's gross. I know that sounds drastic. But Jesus does not mince words in this passage. He knows 
that so often the things we chase after, the things we lean on to find our identity, the things we go to to find our strength and push us forward, really just wear us out. And in the long term, even poison us. Because life can feel like a Barclay Marathon. I don't need to tell you that. We have a limited amount of time. We have 24 hours in the day. We've got to squeeze everything in, right? We've got to make the boss happy. We've got to make sure the house is taken care of. We've got to meet this deadline. We've got to get this person to this practice and this person to this school, et cetera, et cetera. But unlike the Barclay Marathon, there's not just two water stations. There's so many people offering us different waters along the way, not realizing that we are just handing each other poison water all the time. Now, I don't want to tell you this morning, we're going to keep going. I don't want to tell you that I figured out the secret to life that makes it easier. I have not. I haven't figured out the work-life balance. I actually think that's a myth that'll make it feel like there's enough hours in the day for everything. But what I want to do this morning is stop and take the words of Jesus seriously and propose that Jesus is leading us to something else, not balance, He's leading us to flourishing and thriving and how that happens. So let's look at what Jesus says here in John 15. I've broken this up into a couple different sections. First one's this, the root of flourishing. The root of flourishing and thriving in life. Now Jesus makes clear a few things that are easy to confuse. The root of flourishing and the fruit of flourishing. He talks about the vine and the branches here. What is the root of flourishing what is the fruit? And let's start with the root. The root of flourishing and thriving, the only root for us is Jesus. So Jesus knows that his disciples after this evening are going to face a roller coaster of a life. They're going to scatter into the entire known world. They're going to face opposition. They're going to face all kinds of things. So he points them here to the only thing that will lead them to thriving along the way. It's the nourishment of his love for them. Now, he does not tell them to find the strength within themselves. He knows they're about to go out into this difficult thing, and he does not say, all right, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't say, God helps those who help themselves. He tells them that a life of thriving is rooted in him. Now, I want to point something out. That means, and this might feel like bad news, that means the route for us to pursue flourishing and good in our life is outside of ourselves. It's not within ourselves. It's outside of ourselves. Now, human beings, in almost every way, no matter how much we very uh, individualistic Americans want this to be not true, we cannot survive. We cannot survive apart from things outside of ourselves. It's true physically. I can't create the water I need. I can't create the oxygen I need. In fact, I spit out the opposite of the oxygen I need, right? We need the plants. Or think about it socially. We're born as babies, and for years and years, we are utterly dependent in every way on caregivers. In school, we're dependent on teachers teaching us. And staff to do all the things we don't even think about. If we play sports, we're dependent on our coaches. If we own our own business, we're somewhat dependent on our customers. No matter how hard we work, we can't buy our own stuff, right? Well, think about it emotionally. Think about it emotionally. We're meant, in a sense, to find validation 
outside of ourselves, the words of somebody else spoken to us. I think that's actually why the words of others can be so powerful in our minds. How many of us can remember specific instances from years and years ago, especially if you're an adult when you were a kid, when someone belittled or criticized you? It weighs so heavily in our imaginations, names that we were called or things that we were specifically picked on about. Also on the flip side though, how many of us can remember those like tent pole moments when someone we respected praised us? There's a sense that we are meant to find validation on somebody else pronouncing something on us. Now that's complete opposite from how we usually think about it or want it to be, but it's simply true. There are so many factors that make us us outside of us. And Jesus is inviting us here to realize this truth and to turn to Him. To realize that we are meant to find the root of our flourishing in life outside of ourselves, namely in Him. That's the, that's, the very, that's the essence of faith. Think about it. The very definition of faith is dependence on somebody else. We are meant to be externally pointed. There's an overarching image in this passage that Jesus uses, and it's this idea of vine and branches. Notice Jesus calls himself the true vine. He doesn't, say, I'm, he doesn't just say, I'm the vine. He says, I'm the true vine. True's making a point here. It's the point I've already said. True implies that every other quote-unquote vine is false. It's a false source of life. And I think Jesus knows for his disciples that the road ahead is going to tempt them to trust in other things. That they're going to be very powerful men. They're going to go and plant churches and they're going to speak and people listen. Some of them are going to put pen to paper and write books of Scripture. So they're going to be tempted in their troubles to lean upon their status, upon their power, upon their skill, upon their uh, notoriety. They're going to be tempted later on to lean on their ethnic and national identities. In fact, that's part of the chaos in the New Testament. They keep running up against Gentiles. Non-Jews are coming into the church. And even someone... Uh, as high up as Peter the disciple, not Peter Tar. Peter the disciple, his racism keeps bumping up against the mission of God. And it has to be called out. He has to be called out more than once in Scripture. I think Jesus knows they're going to be tempted to lean on that. I'm Jewish. I'm the chosen people of God. But the truth is, if that's where they're going to draw their strength, and where they go next, it's going to run out because it cannot bear the weight of their identity. And the same is true of us. Our position at work or our success at school or whatever, it cannot bear the weight of our identity. Our ethnic identity cannot bear that weight. Our identity as Americans or as Republicans and Democrats or whatever you may be cannot bear that weight. At some point or another, it will collapse. And the good news, friends, is this, that Jesus can offer us a source of confidence and identity, a source of life that will not run out and cannot run out. He makes it clear to us here that living a life of flourishing, living the life that God has for us, we must draw on Him. We must come back time and time again to His love for us that does not depend on us performing to get it. It's a love that, I, like I often say, that we did not earn and cannot lose. 
Pursuing a life of flourishing or fruitfulness, as he says here, is a lost cause apart from the root of that being the love of God and Jesus Christ. So that's the root of flourishing. Let's move on to our second section here, the fruit of flourishing. Because Jesus speaks here a lot about fruitfulness or the fruit of abiding in him. When we abide in him, we will bear fruit. The root will bear fruit. And I'm sorry that rhymes. Um, the root will bear fruit. And the fruit can be summarized in one word. Jesus talks about a lot of things, but it can be summarized in one word, and that's love. When the love of Jesus for us is the root of our flourishing, the fruit of that love is love. To put it a different way, and this is actually quoting Mr. Rogers, we are loved into loving. It's the only way it happens. We are loved into loving. And this fruit is crucial. It's what will distinguish the disciples of Jesus as worth being listened to. As Jesus said in, uh, in John 13, um, or in 14, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Not their intelligence, not their skill as speakers, not their wealth or status or their visionary leadership. They will be worth listened to, being listened to and they will be identified as Jesus' disciples because they love each other well. And how is this love shown? How is this fruit of love shown? Well, Jesus mentions a few things here. He mentions joy. He mentions prayer. He mentions uh, outreach or being on mission. He mentions obedience. And all of those are wonderful things, but if you have any experience in, in church, particularly Southern church culture, you know that all, all those are things that can be steered very easily into a wrong-headed kind of religious performance, which is not flourishing at all. Not flourishing at all. It's performing. It's pretending. So let's, let's look at those again. So in verse 10, Jesus speaks of, uh, of love manifested as obeying His commands. Obeying His commands. We kind of hate that word obey, right? But what Jesus is talking about is not an obedience that springs from a need to prove oneself. That's not obedience to God at all. That's not listening to Him say you are already clean. When we are trying to prove ourselves to God um, through works, that's not obedience to Him. That's disobedience. Because God's not asking us to prove ourselves to Him. So Jesus is speaking of an obedience that springs from a learned love you did not earn. Again, we are loved into loving. An obedience that tries to convince God uh, to love us isn't obedience to Him at all because it's not listening to what He's already said about us. In verse 11, He speaks about joy. I think when we think joy, we tend to think of a smiling face or, um, or a happy uh, religious costume that we're tempted to wear. I'm abounding in joy. Look at me. But the joy Jesus is speaking about, the fruit, that joy that springs from His love is a fundamental realization that because God has worked and is working in Jesus, that we are never handed over to despair. When He says joy, He's saying this, that the most important factor in any situation is always that God is with us. He's there to lead us, encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us, love us. That's a joy that's rooted in who God is and His purposes for us. In verse 7 and verse 16, He speaks about prayer. In fact, Jesus says some pretty drastic thing here. Notice He says, uh, He speaks about asking for whatever you wish. 
whatever you wish. I've heard this verse used to, to justify like uh, naming that I want a Maserati. Like literally going to a car lot and touching the car that I want and saying this is my car. And that that's the act of faith that Jesus is talking about. I'm naming what I wish to have and because, you know, I have faith it'll happen. That, that doesn't happen, by the way. Because what Jesus is talking about here is not a blank check to just get whatever we want in our, you know, what may be selfish desires. He's speaking about the audacity of a child in the presence of their loving father. Not selfish prayers, because these are the prayers he's talking about are those that spring from love. It's the kind of prayers that love prays. Prayers for the good of others. Prayers from the for flourishing and thriving for us. Not prayers of selfishness and greed. That's one of the fruits of the root of the love of Jesus for us. And in verse 16, he speaks of the disciples being on mission. Notice he says that they've been chosen to go and bear fruit. To go and bear fruit. And this is an important part of fruitfulness in Him, in living in love. That's being others-oriented, an outward face. But notice, this is not the Master just giving His servants tasks to do. God could do that if He wanted. He could just create puppets and automatons and give them tasks to do, and they could go, knock off the list, get it done. But as he says here in verse 15, this is him speaking to us, to his disciples and to us over their shoulder as friends. He's not just giving us tasks to get done. He's giving us directions for our lives, for our good. Now, I've mentioned all of those, you know, uh, joy, prayer, being on mission, obedience. All of those are good things. And they can steer very easily because of what our hearts do into unhealthy and draining kind of religious performance. But what Jesus is calling us to here is not to get the cart before the horse or not to confuse the fruit and the root. Because it's so easy for us to see uh, Jesus speaking about prayer here and to think, well, I need to really work on my prayer life. So what I am going to do is I am going to get up at 6 a.m. and I am going to pray for an hour before I get ready for work. That's not a bad thing. Praying is always a good thing. But what is that motivated by? That's not praying because you have a deep conviction in your heart that Jesus adores you. That's praying because you think you need to perform to make this happen. No, we, don't. We, we adore Him. That's right. And we adore Him because He has shown us His love. We don't need to, earn, we don't need to convince Him to love us. We don't need to perform for Him. He's not asking for us to do that. All of these are good things that can steer into unhealthy and draining kind of religious performance. But again, Jesus is loving us into loving. A love that shows itself in these kinds of things. He is love and He shows us through actions what this means. And that leads us to our third point, the cost of our flourishing. The cost of our flourishing. Now there's a danger in the way I've talked about this vine and branches that we would think of it as a very automatic thing. Like if we can figure out just the right way to connect up with Jesus as the vine, then we will always thrive and it just happens. And the danger of that is thinking that Jesus is kind of like just another religious guru who's come to give us uh, some good advice on how to change our mind. 
And if we can change our way of thinking, then everything works right, right? The danger of thinking that the primary problem is an emotional one or a psychological one, and Jesus just came to change the way we think and feel. But the situation, in truth, is much more dire than that, and Jesus knows it. Jesus spoke all of these words just hours before He was arrested. He spoke all of these words just the day before His crucifixion. The day before He did lay down His life for His friends, as He says. You know, Christians often say Jesus died for us or Jesus died for our sins, but what exactly do we mean? How can the single death of a Jewish man in the first century in Jerusalem have anything to do with me? Well, the truth is, it's because he wasn't just a man. As it speaks about in the Gospel of John, he's the Son of God. He's God sent from God who has put on flesh to dwell with us as one of us. He is God and humanity in one person, 100% God, 100% man. And that means that everything that happens to him and everything that he does involves us because he has become the place where, where God and us meet. I'm saying that because when Jesus faces death, he faces it as one of us. And if we've placed our faith in him, he's faced it for us. And that means the finality, the weight that death carries is gutted. We're joined to Jesus by faith. So that means that his death and his victory over death and his resurrection is ours. Scripture tells us that he became sin for us, meaning that Jesus takes our sin from us and he wears the guilt of it himself. And that when we're joined to him by faith, there exists zero condemnation for us. Because the guilt for all of our wrongs have been taken away. All of this means that what Jesus has done, this is the cost of our flourishing, the cost of us being connected to him as the vine and us the branches, his, the root of his love for us. Jesus has removed every barrier that stands in the way of our flourishing. He faced death on a cross for us. Why? Look at verse 11, that his joy would become our joy, that what is his by right becomes ours by grace, and that our joy would be complete, full, not lacking, complete. Jesus faced everything he did with eyes wide open because his mission was to bring to us the joy that belongs to him. And he was committed Whatever stood in the way between his people receiving that joy had to be ripped away, had to be removed. To put it a different way, the God who is love, who dwells eternally in love, who does not need anything at all from us, has moved heaven and earth and entered into our history to bring his love to us so that our everything would be his love. And that is the truest thing about you. That is the truest thing about me. When we've come to Jesus by faith, this is the truest thing about you. It's not an achievement you've made. It's not a trophy you put up on your wall. That's what Jesus means in verse 16. When He speaks about, to His disciples about Him choosing them. 
He's saying that they are not Jesus's friends because they did enough to prove. They weren't smart enough to figure it out. They weren't skilled enough to jump high enough. No. It's all grace. Every single part of it is grace. Today, friends, you, by faith, are a dearly delighted in child of God. One of my favorite pictures is from Zephaniah 2. I think I mention it every third sermon. But it's this picture of God dancing and singing over us in delight. It's the picture that He cannot not hear our voice and stand up and dance. That is the measure and the depth of His love for us. You are an adored child of God. You are loved. You are righteous in God's sight by faith. And you need to do nothing to get there. And every bit of that is grace. It's all a gift. Jesus is the vine. That is the root of who we are. We are the branches connected to that vine. And notice this. We are not the gardener. We are not the gardener. Jesus says it here. I am the vine and my Father is the gardener. The point he's making, and the point I want us to get, is we don't need to manufacture our spiritual growth. You don't need to draw from somewhere within you to make yourself happen, to make flourishing happen. You don't need to draw from within you the strength or the know-how to chase after it. You are loved by God. Lean on that. Draw on that. In conclusion, uh, when the Apostle John, who was in this room on this night, who was probably a teenager at the time, he lived almost to the end of the first century. So he lived a very long life. The only, actually the only one of the disciples who did not die the death of a martyr. Old, old man. When he was an old man, he lived in Ephesus, where he had spent a lot of his life. And... He could not, he got to the point where he couldn't, um, he didn't have enough strength to even get up and, and walk to where they had church. And so they had young men from the church that would come and pick him up and literally carry him to church. And they'd put him there and obviously, you know, he's a guy that walked with Jesus. He's the last one still around. He's written books of scripture. So you, they sit him down and at the end of service, they would ask him if he had anything to say. And he could barely muster out these words, but he would say the same thing over and over again. He would say this one sentence, little children, love one another. That's all he could get out. Little children, love one another. What John was saying to these people, who in a sense were like his children or grandchildren in the faith, he wasn't just trying to tell them something to do. He knew that the gospel that was at the center of who they were was a love so profound that it drives you to love. It's a love that loves you into loving. And that's the love of Jesus for us. Friends, this morning, revel in this love. See this love. Be amazed by it. Be overwhelmed by it. And swept into that love. Let's love one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the love of God in Jesus. This root of flourishing. I pray that we would be people who never confuse the root with the fruit. Teach us to not think of our spiritual growth as something we manufacture or we make happen. 
Let us never focus on that as the main thing. But let us time and time again draw upon you. Jesus, you are the vine. You are our source of life. You are our strength. You are our confidence. You are he who has loved us so much that you removed every barrier that stood in the way. So make us people who thrive and flourish. Make us people who are joyful and obey your commands and live on mission for you and are people of prayer. But may we never, ever, ever leave behind that we are loved by you, period. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.